Abysses, aka responsible, proper social distance shit talking from spare bedrooms across exurban Atlanta. Welcome to the Gods Heathens podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine the crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember, don't believe everything you hear on this podcast or anywhere else for that matter until you've independently verified it for yourself. In other words, duck, duck, go that shit. Episode 100. Woohoo! should have like a music stinger or something or like like when they they see God in in the Middle Age movies. Oh! The sky's open up. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Or not. (laughs) Uh, On this podcast, or not. And I'm going to start off this 100th episode on what I'm drinking. I'm drinking water. What? And I'm drinking a Topo Chico with a... A little single-serving pouch of squirt in an attempt to make this a squirt. I've been at the beach for a couple of days and probably need to take a little break. So I'm I'm taking a break for this one. I don't have a special 100th episode beer, so I'm going to get that disappointment out of the way. Okay. Sorry. Dang. So what what you got, Jeff? Are you coming strong? Well, no. uh, I'm definitely, well. (laughs) Stronger than me. Stronger than Jerry. That He's didn't stronger take than my squirt. <laughs> so this was left by uh, my my daughter Callie. Thank you, Callie, in the refrigerator. Um, this is called Hop, Drop, and Roll from No Duh Brewing in Charlotte, North Carolina. Have you been there, Jerry? No Duh Brewing Company. No. No. Okay. Well, it's a very good IPA. I must say, it's it's a West Coast IPA, so it's not cloudy at all. What I'm I'm looking at the remnants here, and this is seven point two. So, good stuff. Oh, I forgot to say my uh, my water and my squirt is zero point zero ABV. Okay, <laughs> and it's clear. There's there's no cloudiness to it. It is a little hazy. A little hazy. All right. I guess I'm the one that has to. You got to hold up strong. the end. Yep. Yeah. Um, I actually spent. Three to four times what I would normally spend on a bottle of wine for Whoa. tonight's bottle of wine for just this occasion. $12. I win a whole 12 bucks. <laughs> yeah. No, this is Cooper and Thief is the name of it. It is a red wine blend, oddly enough, as one would guess. This is aged three months in bourbon whiskey barrels to produce a complex, smooth, and rounded wine. We stash select lots of our red blend and bourbon barrels. It Ooh. is described as being dark and jammy with toasty vanilla notes. 
and it is uh, 16%. Ooh, wow. heavy hitter. You made up for my zero. And you can definitely taste the bourbon in it, but jammy is the right descriptor because it's got a really nice fruity taste to it. Very fruity, very dark, very good. And now not only did I make up for Jerry's no effort water with my high octane wine, but also Jeff came strong with a high octane guest. So Jeff, tell us who you got to join us on our 100th episode. Dr. Daniel Miller is co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast, along with Brad Onishi, who was on our episode 86 back in February. Dr. Miller is Associate Professor of Religion and Social Thought, Chair Department of Liberal Studies at Landmark College in Putney, Vermont. Dr. Miller has a book coming out this Thursday, actually, titled Queer Democracy, Desire, Dysphoria, and the Body Politic, where he explores democracy and nationalism, including white nationalism, ding, through the fascinating metaphor of a social body. He was kind enough to be on our, our local uh, meetup, Zoom, last month to discuss the book, and it really was well-received. Dan and Brad launched their podcast back in 2018 as two ex-evangelicals discussing religion and politics, sound familiar, with a focus on the religious right. I'll let Dan give the background on their beginnings, but where they currently are spending much of their time is on white Christian nationalism, as we seem to be spending a lot of our time. We started our podcast back in 2017 talking about the crossroads of politics and religion, but back then it was mainly about how annoyingly evangelicalism merged church and state. At that time, we're not aware of the ultimate peril they would put our democracy in, nor were we aware of the long history of evangelicalism aligning with the Republican Party. Jerry, Don, and I found their podcast sometime last year and devoured every episode, and boy, they really put them out, too. Thus, we could think of no better way to celebrate our 100th episode than to have one of the co-hosts and one of the most important podcasts of our time in history. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here with you. So, so tell us about your journey, first of all, from, I guess you were a Southern Baptist pastor, and then you eventually exited evangelicalism altogether. Yeah, so, it, you know, if you have listeners that are still familiar with the, the Bible or the New Testament or grew up with, you got that part where Paul kind of brags about how Jewish he is, right? And he's got all the credentials, and that's sort of how I was with the SBC, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. So, uh I grew up in an evangelical church. Uh, when I was in, you know, high school, I had kind of a what we would call it in the evangelical world was a, a recommitment experience, where that sort of became much more real to me. I committed myself to that. I I've, uh, again using that that kind of uh, language of, of calling. I felt a call to ministry and so forth. And uh, so I was I was the super evangelical youth group kid. Um, I you know went to church every time the door was open, I gave what we call devotionals, kind of little mini, you know, sermons, those kinds of things. Uh, I was active back in kind of the first sort of inaugural wave of True Love Waits. Uh, I think one of my, my purity card was one of those on the National Mall uh, when they did that uh, back in what was that, like 94, 95, something like that. Um Went to a Southern Baptist uh, college, undergraduate, uh, studied uh, religion there, which, which basically I, I got a, a, a degree in uh, biblical languages. So I studied Greek and Hebrew and uh, you know, biblical exegesis and things like that. Uh, was ordained at the end of that time and uh, moved to Seattle, Washington, where I was the, the co-pastor or the, rather the associate pastor, the, the junior pastor out of two of us uh, at, the, at a small Southern Baptist church there in Seattle. 
did my uh, Master of Divinity at a Southern Baptist Seminary. Uh, so sort of the, the, the whole deal. Um, but during that same time, and, and an important part of the story is the, the 2000 election, um, I, I sort of... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I closet in a closeted way. I voted Democratic uh, in that election. I remember not knowing much about politics. And I took some sort of survey on sort of basically social justice issues. It's not the language I would have used then, but that's what we're talking about now. And that's the way we would phrase that. And it turned out that on those issues, I was I was much more, you know, I guess, liberal, uh, which was kind of scary for me at the time, because good Christians, as I understood it at the time, weren't supposed to be that. Um, and then you know, you had the invasion of Iraq and a bunch of other things. Um, I was, as I said, I was in Seattle, which has a really large LGBTQI plus uh, population, and I, I got to know queer people, and they weren't what my tradition had told me that they were. Uh, that was another sort of piece that was chipping away at that. And uh, the long story short, and I'm happy to make it longer if you want, uh, but the long story short is that uh, I, I wanted to go on and continue my, my uh, studies. Uh, eventually went to Oxford and did a graduate degree in systematic theology there, and then to Syracuse to get my PhD. Uh, but when I, when I left to continue my studies, I knew I was finished with evangelicalism. I, you know, I, I resigned my church position to do that. But when I did that, I knew very consciously I was walking away from from evangelicalism. I didn't know kind of what that meant uh, or what that would look like. And you've mentioned the podcast that uh, Brad Onishi and I do. We hear from lots of people in that same boat, right, of that same sense of, of uh, you know, not being sure what it means to leave this tradition that's been really defining for them. That was very much a part of my experience as well. Um, but that, that was back in, you know, the, the early aughts, uh, say. Um, I, think, uh, I think I left in 2000. 2003 something like that um and so since then uh i've developed in you know a lot of different directions but that's that's the long and short of it so yeah i had the uh can kind of take every box on the you know the the sort of evangelical membership card um in in terms of uh of bona fides and that sort of thing yeah so as a southern baptist like don and i ex-catholics we have an affinity and more knowledge about the catholic tradition Less than Jeff does. He's constantly teaching us about our own religion. But. <laughs> that, that's true, too. We think we at least understand it because we kind of came from that tradition. But do you still have that kind of, have that kind of insight with Southern Baptist 2021? I mean, how much, have they, how much has it changed or how much have they changed or the, you know, their movement changed? Do you understand where these people are coming from? Or are they becoming more distant as they at least seem like they get more strident? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I think I do still have that sense. I, I still have um, some friends who are, are part of that tradition uh, and some people that date all the way back to those undergraduate days. Um, I've got a lot of people who are not friends anymore as, as a result of some of the, the work that I've done in recent <laughs> years, but uh, still some who do. So I, I think that I do, and I think I do still understand uh, the kind of conceptual and theological world uh, in which they're they're sort of living and, and out of which they're reasoning and the way that that uh, I, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a firm, I'm firmly convinced that we don't think about the social world much. We perceive it, right? We perceive it to be certain ways and we react to it as we perceive it. And I think I, I still have a good sense of what it is that they're perceiving, right? Um, what has changed, and this is an interesting question, and I've talked about this with other friends who are, you know, have come out of traditions like that. 
on the one hand, sometimes it's hard to gauge, has it become more strident, as you put it, or have I just shifted? You know what, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you know, if, if is, is it different in some ways than it was, say, 20? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it me or them? Uh, and I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, for example, uh, we've been talking about anti-vaxxing a lot, as I'm sure you probably have as well. I grew up in that, that evangelical tradition for a long time. I pastored in it. I studied in it. Not once ever did I meet anybody who was opposed to vaccines, right? Uh, anti-vaxxing, as I've experienced, it started much more in the kind of what I call the, the granola crunchy left um, in places like Vermont, where I teach, where it was kind of wrapped up with anti-GMO stuff and things like that. And it sort of, to stick with a viral metaphor, it sort of left populations. That's a shift and a change. Um but I can still understand, and this is part of the, the academic work that I do, how it is that that came to be incorporated into that kind of conceptual framework and why it is that now it's articulated with things like, in their view, you know, opposing abortion rights or opposing same-sex marriage or, you know, whatever. So I, I, think, that I, I think that I do have that, that sense. Um, and I've, I've had some interesting conversations, sometimes productive, sometimes not, right, with people that are still in that tradition. Um, that it sort of confirms that for me where, you know, I'll, I'll say the kind of sort of counselly language, right? What I hear you saying is, and, you know, echo it back. And, and I, I think I can still enter that rhetorical or conceptual space, as it were, to articulate why it is that they're holding the positions that they do or articulating the positions that they do. I, th I think I can still do that, but it's, there are those pieces and it's interesting to look at some things and say, wow, this seems really different from what I remember in that tradition. But sometimes is it, or is it that I've shifted and that, you know, the tradition hasn't. Um, but in a lot of ways, I, I, I think, I think so. I think I can still enter that space. If you can kind of Vulcan mind meld with them, let's just assume that we are, that, that we're static and we're not going to, you know, move in a in a huge direction. If they continue to, what's next? Because I would have I would have never thought that mask mandates would have driven so much organized anger, and it, it's become like this mark of rebellion. You're, you're not going to uh, force us. That position doesn't feel like they get to an edge and then they come back feels like they're going to continue to keep kind of pushing. First of all, do you think that's the case? And if so, how much, and I'll use this term, worse is it going to get? Yeah, so I guess what I would say is I, I don't know on the specifics, right? If somebody says, what's the mask mandate of, I don't know, 2025? I have no idea. I'm with you. I would not have known what that was. But what I what I do think is I, I think you're you're hitting on something that I think the what it's about it's not it's not about theology it's not about being a biblical inerrantist it's not about Bible verses it's about identity right about what it means what it feels like to be as as the Christian nationalists or the white evangelicals or whatever what it means to be a Christian as they understand and feel and perceive that. And I think, among other things, it is very much at this point an oppositional identity. It's an identity that takes shape in opposition to something else. What is that something else? This gets into discussions I'm sure that you've had a lot. It's anything that threatens that kind of cultural authority of the white Christian patriarchal cisgender, and you know, on and on and on. That that sort of figure of, as as I often put it, what a real or true or authentic American is. A real American is they're white. They're Christian, they're patriarchal, they're straight, they're cisgender, 
and all of that. And so I think that's the issue is anything that comes to be articulated in such a way that it's in it's in opposition to that, that it somehow threatens to displace the authority of that kind of person, that is what will become the target, right? And so when you had, to use the example of masks, why masks? Because it was a politicized issue. It became politicized. Donald Trump and the GOP very effectively and very early managed to spin it as as sort of a way of owning the libs, right? And opposing the liberals and opposing the godless, <laughs> the godless heathens uh, and, and others, right? Um, Don't we know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why it became an issue, right? Not because of masks, not really because of COVID, in my opinion, but because of that sense of identity and, and, and maintaining identity in the face of something that is perceived to be a threat to it. So I think anything that can be articulated as a threat to that identity that somehow displaces it, that becomes whatever that source of opposition is. And for me, that's the linkage of things that seem as different as mask mandates and Black Lives Matter and uh, climate science or anything else. If it is perceived to be quote unquote secular, if it's perceived to be something that questions the authority of white privilege, if it's perceived to be something that in any way uh, represents what some scholars will call a power devaluation crisis that provokes a, a sense of a crisis of a loss of social or cultural power or authority, that will become the target. Now, that's a kind of formal answer, right? Formally, structurally, that's what will happen. What becomes the object that sort of fills that space? That I don't know. Uh, and I wish I did. I wish I, I could predict it. You know, I, I heard the head of the National Institutes of Health today talking about just sort of being baffled about the, the level of opposition to wearing masks in public schools when it's, it's, it's just, it's kind of an easy thing. It's an easy thing to do. And everybody wants, everybody all over the political spectrum wants to have kids back in school, just put on a mask. It's, it's like, it's that easy. Uh, and there's, there's more to it, right. Um, but that's, that's, that's what's going on is it has become the symbol for that. And that's, I think that's the piece that, uh, I can't predict of, of exactly what that object or that cultural artifact or that movement will be that becomes invested with that value. But anything that is perceived to displace what's what's I think felt and perceived to be the rightful place of white Christian patriarchal Americans, that will become the the, the target and the, the object of opposition. But there's always gonna be something now. And that's kind of the point though, right? I mean, because if it was I mean it's COVID and masks, but it could have been anything, and there definitely are people or organizations that want to fill that void with anything to utilize that passion and anger. And it does feel like anger now. So if it's being manipulated, like I'm, a, I'm saying it's being manipulated. It feels like it's being manipulated. It doesn't like nobody cared about a mask mandate. Even a year ago, it, it was relatively non-controversial. And now it's 1776 every day. Where, how do you fight it? Or can you fight it? Because I don't personally, and maybe I'll speak with these guys, I don't want to live with it. I don't want to fight it, but I don't want to, I don't want them to win. Is that too simplistic? I don't, I don't know if it's too simplistic. It's a sentiment that I share. Um, <laughs> what, what I think is, is happening longer term, and I think this is going to be interesting to play out, is 
if I rewind to say when I was an undergraduate, right, I'm a part of part of Gen X, and that was all that was cool once upon a time to be a Gen Xer. And uh, there was a lot of talk in the evangelical world about how Gen X was going to like moderate evangelicalism, right? That we were more open to, you know, again, we didn't quite use this language then, but we were more open to different gender identities and sexual identities and so forth, and it was going to moderate, and it didn't happen, right? Uh, I'm a middle aged man now, and middle aged Gen Xers in evangelicalism toe the evangelical party line. Why? Because it's really, really hard to change social identity, group identities from within, because if you start advocating positions that are too far out of a perceived mainstream, you're just written out of the group, right? It's not that, oh, this person's a a good evangelical who thinks queer people are okay. We should listen to them. It's, oh, this person can't be a good evangelical because they think queer people are okay, right? And they're sort of marginalized for that. So longer term, what I think is that in terms of, say, percentage of the population, I think the people who affiliate with what we call Christian nationalism, white evangelicalism, what have you, I think it'll become a smaller and smaller percentage of the U.S. population. I think just demographically that's going to happen. But I think it will become more and more strident and more and more extreme in the kind of positions that they articulate. So that goes up to your point of, you know, is there a brink or a point beyond which they won't go? I don't think so. So how do you combat that? I think for me, there is engagement with people of goodwill who are legitimately people of goodwill, right? Um, Somebody had to study this. It's the kind of thing that it doesn't surprise anybody, but I read a study uh, probably three or four years ago now uh, that found that Americans who knew queer people uh, were more likely to be accepting of queer people. You don't say. Hmm, Yeah, exactly, right? Somebody (laughs) somebody got a big grant and made tenure off of that. Uh, but, but the point is that the contact does that. And I think that on a micro level for a lot of people, that can be a real thing. And, and we hear that with the, with the, the anti-vaxxing and so forth, right? That if people have a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a parent of another kid at school or whatever, who's vaccinated and can be like, you know what? I was vaccinated. It was no big deal. I, you know, I was tired for a day and then I was fine and you know, whatever that that can change things. And I think the same thing can happen with some of these issues like gender identity, sexual orientation and so forth. The trick is that I think, for the most part, people who become persuaded by that, who begin to perceive the social differently, don't remain within those evangelical traditions, for the most part. I think that they tend to leave those. What does that mean? It means that you get this almost purified, concentrated form that becomes even more extreme. That part, I think, unfortunately, the the way to combat it is it's going to have to be to sort of isolate it culturally, I think, right? To, to sort of, I guess I'm stuck on, you know, vaccine metaphors, but, you know, to, to kind of quarantine it, to to say, look, this, this person here, it's not about information. It's not about a lack of knowledge. It's not about not knowing the truth. It's about a kind of decision not to accept as true or persuasive or anything else, anything that challenges my way of perceiving social reality. It's a refusal to acknowledge the legitimacy or even the humanity of people who don't fit into that framework of, of a kind of normative model of, of what a real American or a real Christian or whatever is. I don't think there's any changing that group. Um, so I think I think the way to attack it, so to speak, is through attrition over time, right? Chip away at those edges, those people who can be persuaded, those people who can be motivated, those people of, of good faith, uh, if I can use that term, who are, are really open to hearing other things and encountering difference and being challenged by that and standing with them, but recognizing that there is a, a core constituency, as it were, that that is impervious to that. 
and then trying to work socially, politically, and otherwise to try to, to basically marginalize that group or contain it as, as, as much as we can, uh, which is not a very optimistic take, but I, I think that's sort of where I'm at with that. So the census just came out, and, and you know we found that, that white Americans are a shrinking population, and people of color are a growing population and you know we knew that was coming and now it's pretty much solid uh, you know evidence that that's happening so this shrinking percent of white Christian nationalists when they see this kind of stuff and they and they experience this kind of thing you know they didn't really need to see the census to experience it is that why we're seeing more of a push away from democracy like I don't remember Southern Baptists or evangelicals even being anti-democratic anti-democracy but it, it seems like that's kind of where this potentially is, is heading if it's not heading already. In other words, if, if we can't have control, you know, because we're a minority, we're going to use every tool in our toolbox to take that control. I mean, is that kind of a concern that you see also? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. I still consider myself in many ways an old school Baptist. And by old school, I mean like, you know, 18th century style <laughs> Baptist in that, uh, you know, Baptists were champions of separation of church and state, and Baptists were champions of congregational polity, right? They were Democrats, uh, small d Democrats. They believed that the congregation of, of, you know, the body of a church made decisions and that ministers were not autocrats. They were, you know, elected or chosen from within that body to, to sort of speak for it and act on behalf of it, but very much infused by it. And so there was, a, in my view, a very strong democratic spirit to that that is now not there. Um, and of course, there's lots of good biblical precedent for being an autocrat, right? There's there's a very autocratic God in lots of parts of the of the Bible, and so for Christians who want to find you know you know evidence for that and legitimation for that, they can. But yeah, I think that that's what it is. It's when you know that you you can't speak for a majority anymore. Uh, and again, if I if I go back to my my days pastoring at that time, if you took something like opposition to LGBTQ rights. It was a majoritarian logic that was used, right? We evangelicals are speaking for the majority of Americans who recognize that this is bad or immoral or whatever. And they were right. It was something like two-thirds of Americans opposed, uh, at the time, say, civil unions and that kind of thing. Those numbers have flipped on their head now. Uh, it's something like two-thirds to three-quarters of Americans uh, you know, support marriage equality now in a very small minority. Almost all of them religious uh, oppose it. So you've got this new rhetoric of being a persecuted minority and individual rights and, you know, freedom of religion and, you know, and, and this and that. It's not that evangelicals now speak as the majority. They now speak as a persecuted minority. So within that, and that's part of what makes them a, a kind of populist nationalist movement, is this is part of populist and nationalist governance. Typically, when it comes into powers, it is very authoritarian, right? Uh, it is very autocratic in the sense that there there is one ruler who is kind of the embodiment of the authentic people. And that's very much uh, the, the logic that was at work when Trump was was in office and you would hear his followers. I, I, I you know, read a lot of stuff on populism for the book and, and would read it. And it was if you had made a character like Trump up, if you'd made this person up and like written, a, I don't know, a thriller novel or something, it would have been panned by critics as a transparent attempt to just create a cartoon character that like lived out every every stereotype about populist uh, leaders, except that it happened, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. it was. And so I think that's yeah. what it is. When you can't win through a majority, uh, you win through a minority. 
uh, you you seize all those mechanisms of power that you can and try to establish yourself as a permanent ruling class. And you do that through things like gerrymandering or for vo- through voter suppression or uh, through storming the Capitol and, and attempting to stop uh, a, a duly conducted election from being certified and what have you. So I think that is very much uh, a part of Christian nationalism and I think a lot of a lot of ways within you know even a lot of mainstream white evangelicals who probably wouldn't come out and say they're opposed to democracy, it's it's very much a part of that, and I think that's evident in this this kind of visceral sense that it's just impossible that Donald Trump lost the election, right? Uh, they, you know that that's an anti-democratic argument as well. So I, I think I think you're right to pick up on that. I think that's a real thing. But they're being fed that though, the election part. It feels like they're falling. And maybe willingly, maybe the, maybe their motivation doesn't matter. But he he basically had been saying that even before the election happened, and it picked up steam and continues to pick up steam. The further away from the election you get, is more of them feel like it was actually stolen. Yeah, it doesn't feel organic. I mean, does the source of the democratic discontent matter, or just the action? That last part, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, here's here's what I would say, and this is one of the reasons why I think I, I kind of went the way I did with some of the, the scholarship and things that I was doing is is at the level of belief or political ideology or whatever you want to call it, right? I'm, I'm an academic and I'm a, I'm a really rationalistic kind of person and I like beliefs and arguments and ideas and social, you know, coherence of ideas and non-contradiction and all those kinds of things. Um, but if I do those personality profile tests, right, it'll also tell me that I'm representative of like 5% of the population, right? <laughs> it's not how most humans work. I think that politics and so, like so, uh, social organization and politics, I think it's about desire. It's not about belief or intellection. It's about desire. It's about a deep felt sense of what society ought to be like, what I most want it to be like. It's an articulation of desire. And it's often a, a kind of uh, there's a theorist, um, a lot of whose work I don't like, but some of his really early work I do. Slavoj Žižek. In case anybody's going to run out and look up Žižek, he, I find him problematic in a lot of ways. But some of his early work is on the concept of fantasy, and he has this really interesting idea that what fantasy is about is about directing desire, about telling us how to desire or what we ought to desire. And what I think somebody, a figure like a Donald Trump, does is come along and yeah, they, they throw something out there. They throw the red meat to the crowd that just devours it. But for me, the issue is that they were ready to devour it, right? It's, it is a fantasy. It's a fantasy image of a society in which, you know, white Christian nationalists are, you know, they control everything and they're going to win every election. They're going to win them easily. And they're going to, you know, make sure the country is great again, meaning white and Christian and, you know, whatever. It's like they're going to heaven. They're creating heaven on earth. Yeah, and it's their, and yeah, it's, it's a way of directing that desire. There was a desire for a certain kind of social order, and a figure came along who effectively tapped into that desire. And so that's why uh, I think I, I'm I don't always have a great alternative to it. I I'm I'm not fully satisfied with the language of manipulation or they're being misled this way or that way or whatever because there's there's a kind of movement there. That had there not been a ripe, I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here, had there not been fertile soil for what Donald Trump uh, and, and the contemporary GOP was was trying to sow, it never would have taken root, 
right? And I think so that that's the other piece of it is is having to understand, you know, what's the significance of these masses, masses of Americans who so readily hopped on board of this, right? Who already had the desire and the fantasy that was ready to shape that political desire in a certain direction, to direct it in a certain way so that when somebody came along, he was able to almost effortlessly do that, right? And anybody who doesn't have that same desire for a social, uh, this is my, my word, right? For a social body that, that is shaped that way, that looks that way, it's it's transparent and obvious. And it seems so clear that, as we would say, they're being manipulated. Um but I don't know if you can, I just don't know that manipulation is the right word, right? Because this is what they want to believe, right? Uh, and I, I think there's a sense in which that desire to believe, that desire to to know what society should be like, um, it's more of an enabling than a manipulating, maybe, if that makes sense. So the, so it's like inertia. Like there, the movement, like it was already, like it was already moving and he tapped into it and kind of steered it. But he got booed the other night. Right. He told people to get vaccines. (laughs) Yeah. In Alabama, I mean, in deep, super deep red Alabama, he got he got booed. And 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 I watched I I watched MSNBC that night and they made it. You know, they talked about it on Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow had a segment on it. And, you know, they didn't it wasn't a dunk on them, but it was kind of dunk ish. You know, like how they were, you know, basically calling him out. So at that point, it felt like the beast, like like they had lost control of it and or he had lost control of it. And he's probably smart enough to change his tune. And oh, he did immediately yeah, after. I mean, he, right. he, he, he backed he off. Like, right. You know, getting vaccinated. He said he got vaccinated, but then he immediately was, you know, consult your physician, you know, do, you know. Watch a YouTube video, you know, whatever. Do your research, you know. It's, right. it's a choice. He, he's right. backtracking now. Yeah. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was an on the spot kind of backtrack. Where yeah. he goes next, if he continues that, it feels like the the movement is controlling him, and not the other way around. Like, do they know? They kind of, I mean, they know where they want to go. Well, I, I guess there's I don't know. probably three questions in there, so. <laughs> <laughs> Pick one, but I, I think yeah. I think it's the complexity. There's a, another uh, sort of line of inquiry that people take on the on the complexities of the concept of representation, right? We often have this notion that if somebody represents somebody else in whatever way, right? If I represent my department in faculty senate, it, you know, I'm, I'm a department chair. If our representatives in Congress represent us, there's a sense in which they speak for us and so forth. But there's also a sense in which we are shaped by our representatives, right? And and all kinds of social science shows us this, that if the people you elect to Congress do certain things, you are more likely to agree with what they do because they're the people you elected to Congress, right? There's a sort of a two-way dynamic there. And I think it's that same dynamic that, that we're seeing with Trump. And that that's why that language of, of manipulation, I think, becomes really, really complex because you're right. Trump, I've, I've often said that Trump was not an aberration of some kind. He was, like, he was like the id of the Republican Party and American evangelicalism and all these things. It's like he just took off all the constraints and just let that energy out, right, into the open and legitimized it and everything else. Um, and so that was that was his enabling movement. But we also see that once you do that, it's not easy to rein that back in. And it, it does, as you see, that language of inertia is great. You know, you start a, 
start a freight train rolling uh, just a little bit, it takes a lot of work to try to stop it. Uh, and if you hop in front of it, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to get run over. Uh, and so, you know, as you say, he, he backed off of those statements. And so it does show, I think, this this really complex dynamic that, I again, I think is is kind of quintessential of a lot of populist movements of the populist leader and the populist people and the relation between those and the way that they are sort of co-constitutive of each other. It's a kind of symbiotic relationship that can go in lots of, you know, open up lots of dynamics like what we saw the other night with Donald Trump being booed for suggesting that people get vaccines. Because I think a parallel movement going on is QAnon. Now, I don't know how active it is now. I don't know if uh, whoever Q is. And I think there was suspicion on HBO. I, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Ron Watkins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and he was on the My Pillow uh, Symposium as well. But it, it seemed like that's kind of also steering the ship a little bit away from where Trump ever, you know, because that, that's a totally organic grassroots kind of thing that nobody can control. I don't know, you know, anybody's controlling that. So that that's also problematic, I think. And, and we tend to kind of have forgotten about QAnon, but I don't know if, if we're wise to do that at this point. Has there been a Q drop since? When, when, when was the last Q? Was it pre the election or was it, you know, has there been one since the 6th? What does there need to be yeah. for it to, for it to, I mean, is there cross pollen? How much cross pollination really is there between Q and evangelicals? I mean, that's not something that's, that can be polled, but there's a lot of people wearing Q that are telling, you know, that are screaming about God and Jesus. Yeah, I think, I think what there is, and I, I'm not an expert on conspiracism or, or QAnon at all, but it is sort of something I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with. And, uh, I've actually talked with a colleague of mine in psychology about sort of co-teaching a course on conspiracism, right, with sort of a psychological side and a philosophical side. But I think the the commonality, as it were, is, again, it's kind of structural, right? For a lot of Christians, of a certain kind of Christians, certainly a lot of evangelicals, it's a worldview where there is a world of unseen powers and forces at work. There's a world where there is, despite all appearances of randomness and chaos and meaninglessness and tragedy and things that just happen because that's just how life is and it's it's bad and things happen, that there is a prime mover behind it uh, who's controlling it all and who's, who's uh, you know, the, the sort of puppet master, as it were, who, who's working everything out, you know, and so on. If that's already a way that you see the world, that you perceive the world, that uh, a way that you go about explaining why it is that your life isn't maybe working the way that you want it to, that there's a reason behind it and there's a, a higher purpose, or more negatively, that there are spiritual forces arrayed against you, or that if things are going great, it's not because you were lucky and invested at the right time or because, you know, I don't know, you inherited some money from your parents or because you're a privileged person who, you know, just had some benefits other people didn't have. It's because of divine favor, again, this un seen force that's pulling for you it's not hard to weld that to forms of conspiracism that basically say the same thing right that all of these seeming seemingly unrelated things they're unified there's something behind it there are master actors and and some of them are are nefarious actors who are out to get you and to harm you and to disadvantage you and so forth i think there that's why you you start seeing that overlap in those, as you say, with QAnon followers yelling about God and Jesus and so forth, is because again there are those those kind of parallel structures 
Um, and I imagine uh, my psychology colleague would maybe be able to tell me, I imagine there are sort of maybe common psychological markers as well as to, you know, the, the, the kind of person who finds that comforting uh, or persuasive, or again, who sort of needs to hear that or to know that or to think that. Um, so I'm not saying everybody who's religious is a conspiracist, uh, and I'm not saying everybody who's a conspiracist is religious, but there are certainly some forms of religion I think meld easily and meld well with conspiracism, uh, including QAnon. Well, and plus, I think it gives people community, a sense of community. A lot of these people, I think, perhaps have left their, you know, regular bricks and mortar church and, you know, have, have kind of done religion on their own. And so QAnon has become kind of their own religion. Uh, and, and they use language of uh, cosmic battle as well. So, you know, it's kind of the devil and, you know, anybody that's not in a group is of Satan and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I see a lot of parallels, though, but, but I'm not quite sure, um, you know, where that's heading, if, if it's even, you know, still going strong at this point. This is an atheist podcast. You know, there is uh, times of self-reflection. And maybe this is too broad of a question, but where do atheists or the atheist movement, air quotes, go wrong? Or where does... You know, like the worst or the tendencies in atheists that make people reject either atheists or atheism. Yeah. So, I mean, just I don't have a great answer for that because, of course, it's it's a broad, complex, you know, uh, I'm not even sure community is the right word, right? It's communities, constellation of communities and individuals. Uh, one thing I would say, no, nobody likes to be preached at. Uh, a lot of us don't like being preached at by the hyper-religious, but a lot of us also don't like being preached at by the the hyper-atheistic, right? The Richard Dawkinses of the world and the kind of pretension and, you know, pomposity that comes out of that. Um, I won't quote it, but there's a great South Park episode about that where they, <laughs> the wisdom of South Park, you know, sums that up really well. Um, I think another one, and this this is not universal um, at all among uh atheists or people who don't identify as religious or, or whatever. But I run into this a lot in religious studies or, you know, from students or things like that, which is the, you know, all religion is X, you know, and whatever you fill in the X, and it's usually negative, right? Religion is violent. Uh, and the kind of Sam Harris is the world that no matter what it is that's wrong with the world, he will go through tortured ways to try to trace it back to religion, right? In, in some way. Um, and I always tell my students that, you know, and I, I truly do not feel like I have any dog in the fight at all about whether people identify with a religion or not. I just I frankly don't care. Um, <laughs> um, but I'll tell students, I'll be like, you know, religions are what their adherents do, right? Um, there, there is no religion. It's, it's an abstraction. There's no, I often play a trick on students. I'll say, what does Islam teach about, you know, whatever? And they'll tell me stuff. And I'm like, haha, I tricked you. It's Islam doesn't teach anything. Muslims teach stuff. Uh, Islam's not an agent. Christianity is not an agent that does things. Buddhism doesn't do stuff. Buddhists do. Well, what does that mean? It means that, yeah, there's some really awful, heinous stuff, uh, that lots and lots of religious groups of different kinds do. I also, if we're looking at the U.S. context, I don't think we ever would have had the African-American civil rights movement we had without the black church, right? It, it very much was an articulation of a very distinctively American religious tradition. Um, so I think I think that, I think just missing the nuance of that, sort, sort of like a lot of religious people are like, if you're not religious, you can't possibly have ethics or be a moral person mm -hmm. or, you know, or something like that, which is is just silly. Uh I think that that's it, and I think I think it's just maybe it's just the risk of 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 reduction 
that misses the complexity of, of the sort of lived experience of, of these different kinds of groups and things like that. I think that that's one. Um, those are just some some ideas, and again, those are, are things that uh, aren't necessarily they're not a criticism of atheism per se, right? I think one can be an atheist, and I've known a lot. I've known more. I'm in the I'm in the academy. I've known more than my share of atheists, right? Uh, who you know can work in common cause with a progressive, you know, Christian denomination for ad- advancing queer rights or something like that. I think where it goes wrong is the 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 reduction of all religion to, for example, Christian nationalism or Islamic extremism or, you know, Buddhist monks, you know, slaughtering the Rohingya uh, in Myanmar or whatever it is. Yeah, because I I came out of more of a mainline progressive Christian background, and I still have some friends. Like we had, uh, do you know who Doug Padgett is from the the old days of the emergent movement? Yeah, I I met him once upon a time long ago, yeah. Oh, cool, yeah. So... Yeah, so I'm still friends with him. He was on our podcast um, right before the election. Right before the election, yeah, he was he was doing a, a big bus tour kind of thing about trying to uh, vote common good. Um, vote. Th- thank you very much. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, as we discussed, is like we tick every box as far as you know, social justice and you know, um, LGBTQ rights, everything. The only the only box we don't tick off the same is is the God box. So, you know, there's so much that we can do with, you know, partnering with progressive Christianity, although I, I see that as, as uh, you know, a slowly dying, you know, end of Christianity, unfortunately. I, you know, I, I don't know where that's, where that's headed, but— um, Well, to some uh, extent, aren't all religions dwindling in numbers except for evangelicalism? Well, even evangelicalism is now, at least in the U.S., uh, which mm-hmm. is a pretty recent phenomenon. But yeah, even that is beginning to decline. Yeah. Okay. So we're all going after the nuns, like religious, atheist, humanist. Like if they're going to grow your, if you're going to grow your community, you're going to grow them with the nuns, right? Because for I think atheists sometimes associate nuns with, you know, like you're you're almost with us. You're like one one step away from being an atheist, and like the JV squad. Yeah, they might not be anywhere near it. Yeah, but there's not a lot of atheist or positive atheist outreach either. Not always a compelling case on why you should be an atheist, other than you're not religious and you don't do what those religious people do. Not a good not a good pitch. So yeah, I think one thing I want to hear about was. Um, your podcast from the inception to where it's kind of um, uh, you know gone in the last number of number of uh, months. Yeah, so it started out. Uh, neither Brad nor I had any idea what we were doing as, as part of it, right? Um, and we we felt like we had this really interesting background. Both of us, you know, I talked about my background. Both of us had a, a kind of a similar background. We both were in evangelicalism. Uh, he ended up in sort of youth ministry. I was in, you know, uh, sort of pastoral ministry. We both left the movement. A large, you know, it sort of coincided with going on to get, you know, advanced degrees in theology. We were actually, we didn't coincide, uh, but we actually met each other because we studied at the same, the same college at Oxford. Um, uh, but you know, you got common friends there. We both went on to get PhDs in religious studies um, and sort of leave evangelicalism. And 
And as all this was unfolding after 2016, I, I published an article uh, basically trying to you know give my spin on like why a record number of white evangelicals supported Donald Trump in the election. And at the time, this was still really surprising because the like reference point was the so-called values voters of like the 2004 election, you know, and things like that. And, and, you know, nobody could kind of make sense of like (laughs) how these people that opposed Bill Clinton were embracing Donald Trump. Uh, And that seems almost like a quaint conversation at this point, but it was, you know, it was a big point of confusion in say 2016, 2017. Um, And so we started talking about, you know, basically trying to help people understand that uh, because people would ask us about that. I think both of us were taking, all this background we had uh, in, you know, philosophy and for me increasingly uh, political theory and things like this and trying to use those tools to understand some of that. And so if, if people go back and they listen to some of those early episodes, uh, they're, they're sort of, you know, thematic series and that kind of thing and, you know, and, and sort of laying that out and seeking to articulate that to people. As time went on, Partly, uh, all of you have talked about this and experienced it, partly through just the circumstances of COVID and figuring out how you do this, you know, virtually and in a digital format and, and different things like that. Part of it was through Brad's changing role where he essentially is is like a, a, a almost full-time producer of the podcast now and, and puts, you know, a lot more time into that than uh, than I'm able to. But focusing on, you know, some interviews with things and special series. But we also started, and this is where a lot of our energy has been in more recent months and a year plus now, of this, what we call just the weekly roundup of sort of trying to keep that same theme in, in our minds building and saying, okay, we've spent a couple years like doing all that and laying this groundwork and showing where all that comes from. And this was, you know, coming into the the last election and things like that. And we were like, we're going to use that and try to just say, you know, how do we make sense of sort of what's going on on a weekly basis? You know, big news events that relate to Christian nationalism and religion and politics and so forth. And I remember when we first talked about that, my concern is that it would lose relevance, right? I'm like, well, we're going to, like, that's fine, but I don't know. Well, it hasn't because... We'll run out of things to say. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. It's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to run out of, you know, things to say. And we haven't yet. But I think that's been a part of the evolution. Um, another piece of that is we're, we're launching, uh, here in, gosh, I guess just three, three weeks or so. Um, and really closer to two weeks. I'm looking at the date. Um, our first sort of seminar series coming out of the podcast, um, where we're trying to sort of take that for, for the people that want sort of the deeper dive and something a little bit more, for lack of a better word, a little more academic, a little bit more, um, intellectually or, or theoretically robust, you know, developing it in that direction and some new initiatives. And so, I think those are some of the the, the ways that it's changed um, and modified over time, and I'm not sure exactly where that'll go. Um, but it's it's interesting to look back, and I'm sure your experience is similar. Uh, how much of that has been intentional or programmatic, and how much of that you've sort of fallen into through the circumstances of of you know uh, social <laughs> social isolation and digital formats and and all of that sort of stuff. So it's it's really evolved a lot. Um, but we you know, just try to be responsive to people and, you know, what's what's clicking with them. What, what do they want to know? What do they what questions do they have? What uh, how can we be a resource? I think it's been interesting to us what kinds of people have been drawn to the podcast and, and who we hear from. Uh, I, I hear a lot. I, we didn't I don't think picture ourselves as part of the, you know, the quote unquote ex-evangelical movement. Um or those who are sort of coming out of evangelicalism or, or, you know, there's a lot of recovery language about that now, right? Sort of recovering from that. I don't think we really saw ourselves as part of that when we started, but it's resonated with lots of people. We hear from people all the time who, you know, 
uh, find that, you know, almost sort of draw hope from that. And so that's Im- impacted us as well. So I think just an ongoing sense of trying to to keep showing how this this academic stuff that we do matters uh, and how it can communicate in the real world and tell us real things about why people do the things that they do. Um, but also increasingly, I, th- I hope, uh, you know, as a resource uh, for people in, in different places, different walks of life, different roles, um, where they can really find value in the kinds of things that we're trying to look at and explore. Well, you guys have had amazing guests on there too, you know, that, that are published authors that uh, I, I think I've probably purchased every book from the authors <laughs> you have on there. Um, so, I mean, that's just incredibly helpful to, to find the long history. And didn't, didn't you guys have a series too called The Orange Way? Yeah, yeah Brad, Brad really put that together. Um, and again, for him, it's it's sort of a, a homegrown piece in the sense that you know a lot of that focus on the West Coast and the role of, of West Coast Christianity and politics and so forth. And of course, that's where he's from. And it's very much deeply a part of, of, of who I think Brad is as Brad is, is just, he's, he's just a very West coast California person and resonates with that. And so, um, yeah. And tracing those, and I, I'll say one of the things that we never sat down and sort of programmed or strategized about, but it was just sort of a pattern that we, we sort of, uh, adopted or fell into or whatever is that often, if people listen to the way we approach things, Brad often has that sort of historical angle. Like, here's how this thing developed over time. Here's here's what was being said in the 40s and 50s and 60s and how it plays out in the 70s and 80s and so forth. And I'm often coming along, and you know, I'll often know that story, but I may not know it as much as Brad has. I haven't researched it as much, but I'm often coming along with a sort of the theoretical overlay of, okay, like sort of here's what's going in terms of political identities or here's how political theory helps us to understand those shifts or, or what's been going on. And I think when we're at our best, those things kind of come together and, and I, you know, I hope it's, it's illuminative. Uh, I think I probably have the reputation of being the geek of the two of us. Um, Brad, Brad's just cooler. He surfs and stuff. It's, you know, um, but, but, but I'm taller, so I'll, I'll just take that. Um, we all want to be Brad when we grow up. That's right. Um, yeah, but it's yeah, it's just it's been interesting to see how that develops, and I think where his strengths lie and my strengths lie, and trying to bring those together, and again, just to try to to talk in a way that um, resonates with people, and you know, and the guests that we've had, we've been really fortunate to have them, and a lot of them, I think, a lot of us in academia, a lot of the guests are academics, a lot of us in academia, you know, we're passionate about what we do, we think that it matters we don't intentionally write and do things in these abstruse kinds of ways. And I've found people are, are really excited to be able to, to present it to an audience outside of that people who maybe outside of that, they're not, they're not going to go and buy those books or they're never going to know that they exist. Um, and I, I've, I found I've, I've been really, it's been really gratifying to engage so many of our guests because they've been so enthusiastic about, you know, um, taking the time to do that. And it's, it's, you know, as you say, all these 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 works that we talk about, they're amazing. It's uh, I've got a giant stack of them as well. Um, so yeah, this may be kind of too inside pod baseball, but how often how scripted is your rundown? And if it is, how often or uh, how quickly in the course of a show? Do you veer off into a topic that you didn't quite think you were going to get to, and then all of a sudden you're just on a roll, and you know, like, like the passion just kind of, you know, comes out in the conversation? Are you? Do you guys know what you're going to talk about, or is it, you know, we know what we're going to talk about, but hold on, yeah, you don't know which direction this train's going. Let's see how we get there. Yeah, at this point, it's um, 
a lot of times it's a pretty almost cursory sort of outline. So we will, we'll pick out the main themes or main news articles, say in that weekly roundup or, or something like that. Um, and one of us, like I, I often send Brad emails through the week of like, just, they're just links to news things. It's as much so I can remember what I saw by the time we get to the end of the week. And it feels like it's been three weeks. I go back through the that. sent emails and be like, Oh yeah, I found that thing. And you know, so we'll sort of lay that out talk just, just a little bit about, you know, sort of where we, where we might each go with that. Um, but beyond that, it's not very scripted now. I think uh, this is another part of the digital format, right? Seeing each other on the screen helps. You can kind of be waving about, you know, I'm going to say something or, you know, whatever. Um, but I also think, and I think it helps that we've known each other quite a while. We knew each other for a long time before we did this. And and I think as you go, and I'm sure all of you have the same thing, you get that starting that sort of synergy of, of how that works. I think we're, a lot of it, we're just able to sort of play off of each other in a way where it doesn't have to be super scripted. Um but it's it's all it does it does have a shape, um, you know. It, it, uh, otherwise, we would we'd go for like two hours every you know Friday <laughs> afternoon, and um, it would be weirder than it already is when you know get the the weird comments about you know best burger places and things like that. If, if you've listened, you know the Brad's very passionate about where the real hamburgers come from, and everybody knows yeah, that I it? that I don't enjoy going to the beach. Uh, you know those things come out, but. He's wrong about In-N-Out fries. Period. <laughs> Dead wrong. We'll fight about that. You know, one of the one of the things I like about you know the ending of your podcast where you guys do reasons for hope, and to me, you know, because it's it's a pretty, you know, the content can be depressing. You know, kind of like what what our podcasts tend to be also. So it's kind of nice to have little shiny glimmers of hope at the end there to to say, well, you know. Could be worse. Here's some things that might uh, might be on the horizon. So. Yeah, it's it's probably it's it's probably a good therapeutic exercise in a, in a certain sense to you know to be able to because I'll admit there there are weeks when it's not easy to find one or you know figure yeah. out what it is. Or now it's turned into this kind of game where people try to guess what I'm going to say because it's always about the pandemic, and so I you know I have to try to find what I would have said and then think of something else uh, that's not about the Denver Broncos. Although there's not much reason for hope there, but that's where I want to find hope. Um, but but yeah, and I think that that's been good as well because you know my my brother uh, you know told me and I <laughs> that he he's had to stop listening because he gets too angry right about you know not at us but about the stuff we're talking the about world, and yeah. mm-hmm. it's it's easy to do that and I, I imagine all of you've had the same case where there are just weeks where you're just like I got to just stop looking at the news for a little while um, <laughs> because yeah because Jerry gets out on the ledge oftentimes yeah. and we we join him out there yeah. from time to time yeah. So before we let you go, too, uh, you have a book coming out this Thursday. If you could do like a you know, just a quick it'll, it'll um, be out elevator by the time this episode drops. So yeah, we're recording yeah, this yeah. couple days before the episode. Uh, the, the book comes out on Thursday. The what would that be? The twenty sixth. Yep. Uh, but this episode will come out a couple days after that. So it'll be it, it. The book's out. If you're hearing this, the book's out. Yeah, the book's out. Get it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's just kind of weird. What I do is I look at f- for a couple thousand years in uh, longer in Western thought, other cultures as well. Uh, there's been this way of thinking about society as a kind of body, right? The body is a metaphor for understanding society. Uh, and what I what I look at is is somewhere along the line, I took the the idea and I said, you know, what, what does that metaphor do? Uh, why why that metaphor? Why do we think of society as a body? And I begin by just arguing that um, that metaphor has always worked, this this notion of desire. It's expressed a desire for a, a certain social order. The society should be ordered in a certain way. Uh, and uh, it's it's it presupposes pre, uh, a kind of body with the right shape. Uh, and all the members of the body are in the right place, 
doing their right thing, playing their appointed roles. And when they do, the body is healthy. And what that leads to is a model of society as properly ordered. And as long as everybody remains in their proper place, doing their proper things, society is healthy. What does it mean? It means that the metaphor has always worked to basically quash dissent, right? That any members of the social body that are out of place or perceived to be out of place are are, are sort of clamped down on. And, and I bring that into contemporary thoughts. So that means that it's, it's essentially an anti-democratic desire. Uh, and what it does is it provokes, and I stay with this metaphor of embodiment, it provokes dysphoric responses. Uh, dysphoria is a negative reaction to bodies that are viewed uh, as misshapen in some way. Um, and and so I look at Christian nationalism and, and other movements as kind of dysphoric responses when social members like people of color out protesting, they're out of place and we need to put them back in their place. And women demanding equal pay or demanding protection from, uh, you know, pervasive rape culture in the workplace or whatever uh, need to be brought back in their place. Where I turn in the book, it's called Queer Democracy, is, is I draw on queer and transgender theories of embodiment that argue and say, well, you know, that's interesting, but it turns out there is no normal body. Bodies come in all different kinds of shapes and configurations, and they're constantly morphing and changing. And I look at it and say, what if we understood the social body that way, as a queer body that's continually changing shape, and its morphology is shifting and changing, and that's what I call queer democracy, our practices that embrace that and say, you know what, instead of clamping down on movements that arise and demand their place within the demos, the democratic people, we're going to embrace that and recognize that who we are as a social body is never finished. It's always changing. It's always evolving. Uh, and if that means that privileged groups have to learn to recognize that privilege and relinquish that and affirm and welcome others, then so be it. So that's sort of the impulse behind the book and, and, and what I try to do in that. So hopefully at the end, you give a good solution to how we get there. Yeah, I fix it all. It's on the cool. last page. Okay, good. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So just skip to the end. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to go to the end first. Yeah. How, to fix, how to fix society. Uh, there it is, yeah. I wish. I wish that was that I could do that. Catchy title, though. Yeah. Thanks. How to fix looking, society. I'd buy it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think whenever you write a book, the really exciting thing is when you get you just get like a free a few few copies of it, and when you get those in the mail, that's when it feels like you know sort of really real. So, well, this isn't your first book either, is it? No, it's my second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. my first book is called uh, Beyond uh, um, uh, the Myth. <laughs> I couldn't remember the Myth of Normative Secularism. Um, yeah, there was some some debate about the title at the time. <laughs> I still I still like my original title better, but whatever. Did you get to pick the title of this last book, or, or did the, I did? It's a sort of in collaboration. Kinda... You you have you know the editor uh, who often has a better sense of sort of you know what what might work and what might not. Uh, and I'm mm -hmm. not a great titler. If if people have ever seen books written by like British people in the 19th century uh, that are like four lines long, it's like basically like a paragraph. That's me. That's how I want to title things. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but in this case, uh, I did, and it was because I, I got better about bouncing ideas off a lot of people. And so by the time I, I pitched the the book, it was uh, the title that that I had. And um, nice, yeah, nice. That's always satisfying to get that. What was the original title of the book that you wanted to go with? That you thought was better? no, that was it. Uh, of the of the original one, the the yeah. first book, uh, it was something about beyond normative. I didn't like the language of myth of normative secularism because I'm I'm an academic and a religious studies person. I'm like I'm not really talking about myth, and myth means all this stuff. And the editor was like, just stop because that's not what people think when they hear myth. Like myth works better. And she was mm -hmm. right, um, but I I still liked it better because you know 
just like in this one, once upon a time, I, I was insistent on having the word transmogrification uh, in there. And that why would you put that in a title? There's no reason, uh, except that inside of me, inside of me, I'm a little 19th century British person. Uh, there you go. So, yeah. A lot of colons. And, yeah, and exactly. Yeah. If you, if you get, like, get away with like three subtitles and a couple semicolons with the colons, you get yeah. your, your, your golden. So. Jackpot. Yeah, if Jerry ever writes a book, the title will be a bulleted list. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and you will remember it that way. You don't need a title. You just need a table of contents. No. Like, just put the table of yeah, contents there you on go. the front Put cover. that on there. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect, Jerry. Well, you knocked a home run when, when you titled your uh, your podcast. Uh, was was that the first one that you came up with? Yeah, did you guys workshop that? Yeah. Um, I don't remember. I, so uh, I'll just say there were some beers involved. Um, it was, a, <laughs> it was an in-person is. thing. And so it I, is a podcast. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember exactly where it came up or, or you know, how many beers were involved. But um, that is what we came out of, you know, the first time we talked about doing a podcast. And that's it. It stuck. And mm. um, for the most part, perfect. it works. I, I, Plus, it's got a good acronym. First one we had was Pod Dammit. Uh, but we found out it was taken. <laughs> right. So It's like when you try to come up with a good username, and it turns out that you know, yeah, a lot of other people knew it was a good user. username. You got to put a four-digit so. number after it because that many people have already used it. Yeah. Yeah. So it could have been Pod Damn It two thousand one hundred and forty-six, and exactly. you'd, been, you'd have been fine. <laughs> well, really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Uh, oh, excellent absolutely. conversation. Yeah. No, thank good you. Thank you so much for for having me. I really appreciate it. We are honored. Thanks to Professor Miller or Dan for joining us. I thought it was a good conversation. I come away from the podcast, his podcast, with some insight, and I definitely thought, uh, definitely got some from uh, his conversation with us. Definitely appreciate his time. I, it may be the professor in him, but I feel like I learn something every time he talks. Yeah, you know, every time I listen it. to him talk, him and Brad both, I feel like I learn something. Definitely yeah, appreciate the time. Yep. They know their stuff. So has anybody got a recommendation? Other than than his uh, book coming his out, book, which I, which I should out. have on Thursday. Well, I'll have it in my hand when this is out. So yeah. um, I'm definitely suggesting Queer Democracy, Desire, Dysphoria, and the Body Politic. That's my recommendation. There you go. What do you got, Jerry? I don't have a, I don't have a, well, I don't know if it's a happy recommendation, but it's a, it's a recommendation that listeners of this pod might want to check out. Is this not a reason for hope? It is. <laughs> hmm. It, you know what? It's a reason for cope. Oh, okay. um, oh I see yeah. what you did there. It's yeah. in, yeah, that's a hundred, a uh, hundred episodes. Segway, man. That's a t-shirt. Reason for cope. <laughs> Teespring.com slash God is heathens. <laughs> <laughs> it's from Slate, and I believe she is the executive editor or editor-in-chief. Her name is Allison Benedict. The headline is, My COVID Parenting Has Reached Peak Inconsistency. Subhead, Honestly, I have no idea what I'm letting my kids do anymore. Even though I don't have kids that age, that whole, I have no idea what I'm letting my kids do anymore, I just get rid of the... Uh, my kids part and replace that with me myself (laughs) i have no idea honestly what i'm doing and when at least as far as covid goes other than to kind of treat it like the worst of the pandemic has never ended honestly that doesn't feel great but the article is about 
somebody who wants to be serious about it and is serious about it, but all of the trade-offs that get made in the moment and feel inconsistent, probably don't feel so great. And then, then it's, she doesn't say this in the article, but kind of like, you know, just kind of shrug, like, you know, like, what are you going to do? And I feel kind of like that's how I handle the pandemic now. Mm-hmm. I don't really like it. It, I, I don't have a rhythm. And when you travel down through Alabama and South Georgia and the panhandle of Florida, there is no pandemic, man. There's nobody right, yep. wearing masks. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And crowding into restaurants and zero problem with it. Zero give a shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot totally. of buffet style restaurants <clears throat> in the uh, in the Redneck Riviera down there last week. We were we were right across the street from one of the more popular ones on 30A, and it was packed. And the first time I saw a mask was about nine o'clock on the day before we left. There's so many. There's people. This a popular place, and there's always people sitting on the benches outside waiting to get in. Not one of them ever had a mask on. Mm-mm. Well, they're all came out, came out of it with a mask either. They're all fully vaccinated. Yeah, I would I'm assume. Sure. Yeah. There is no way. Yeah, absolutely, there is no way. I can't remember the last time I ate it like a buffet style. Oh, geez, I don't know if I can <laughs> eat at a buffet again. <laughs> this was, you know. this wasn't a this wasn't a buffet restaurant, but. It didn't matter where you went. Nobody was wearing masks. No one. Wow. Anywhere. Went to Chick-fil-A. Driving back today. The dining room is open. How many workers had masks on? All of them. At the Chick-fil-A? All of them. None. Oh, geez. Big fat zero. No, you can't require it. You can't require it in Florida. This was in Alabama. Make a little pit stop for some hate chicken on the way back? Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pretty much. Let me get a let me get a order of hate chicken uh, tenders and uh, some waffle fries. That's a number four for the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have no recommendation. No shows that are dropping that. Other dang. than to thank the listeners who have stuck with yes. us for a hundred episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And even those who dive in and out. Or new listeners, your listening ears and commentary and occasional Twitter threads are appreciated. And we appreciate the ability to talk at you every Mm -hmm. couple weeks. Jerry can go ahead and pre-roll his eyes now, but I'm going to go ahead and thank the Facebook group as well, too. We actually made it through the period of where everything had to be approved. Before uh, all posts had all that. Remember all that? I was talking about uh, that. All the in, posts had to be approved and all you're, that. You're in time out. We made it through, yeah. so didn't get shut down. So There you go. Yeah. The Facebook Happy gods were again. shining upon you. As long, yep. as long as you're good with the Zuck, then... Feel free to shit post it, Will. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for being there. We'll see you all in two see weeks. See you later. See you next Shoot him with my gun He made me mad The devil
devil's bad, the devil is a bum, but the devil is my friend, the devil is my friend, wherever I go, the devil goes, the devil is my friend, and Godzilla is my friend, Godzilla is my friend, wherever I go, Godzilla goes, Godzilla is my friend, and Shrinko was my friend, and Bridget was my friend, and Andrew Bob, he just popped off, now Gorbachev is my friend, and Frank Sinatra is my friend, Frank Sinatra is my friend, wherever I go, Sinatra goes, Frankie is my friend, and love and rockets are my friends, love and rockets are my friends. <laughs> 